Hey, this is Pastor Chris from Caw Prairie Community Church, and I'd like to thank you for listening to our podcast. I'd also like to encourage you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at live.cawprey.org. There, you'll not only find the message, but also an interactive community where you can engage with others while you take in that message. That's Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at live.cawparade.org. And if you'd like to support our efforts, please visit cawparade.org slash give. Once again, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Caw Prairie. This is Pastor Chris, and I have the privilege of sharing today's message. Now, we're actually kicking off a new message series entitled Church in the Lobby. And I know that's kind of an odd title, and I promise it's going to make more sense as we get into the message. But I am here in the lobby at Caw Prairie Community Church. And just a reminder, we are meeting back in person. So if you live in the area, we would love to see you. Our in-person service starts at 9 a.m. and our online service starts at 10 a.m. And honestly, we would love to see you at either Um, As we always say, there's a seat for you. And we believe that at either service, there's a seat for you to sit at the table and get to know Jesus. And so let's dive into our new series. We're going to be using a handful of chapters in the book of John to answer the question, what does it mean to do church in the lobby? And today we're going to be taking a look at John 4. So I encourage you to grab your Bible or click the Bible tab, and we're going to be reading out of John 4, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize them. His disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Now, I'll tell you what I love about that right there. I I have a daughter. She just turned 10, and she just finished the fourth grade. And I have experienced more drama in the past year than I ever thought I would experience. Everything in her life involves some level of drama. Now, if there's any parents out there that can relate to me, please click the heart button. Just let me know I'm not alone in this. But every day, she would come home and she would always have a dramatic story about somebody stabbing somebody else in the back on the playground or there being cliques that she wasn't a part of or so-and-so was having a sleepover and didn't invite her. And while I love my daughter and while I tried my best to listen, sometimes I just had to stop her and say, I cannot take any more drama, I'm just going to go over there. And what I love is that's kind of what Jesus does in this introduction. To be honest, the Pharisees are a lot like fourth grade girls. They love to stir up drama. They are always following Jesus and his disciples around, challenging them in public, causing a scene, and just making it difficult to do ministry. And here we have an example where that starts to happen, and Jesus basically says, I can't take any more drama. I'm going to go over there. And he tells his disciples, we're going to leave this area of Judea and we're going to go back to Galilee. 
Now, to understand this journey that they're going to be on, we need to know just a little geography. If you look at a map of first century Palestine, you're going to see that there are three main areas. Down at the bottom, you've got Judea. Up at the top, you've got Galilee. And in the middle, you have Samaria. And there is a long, complicated backstory to how all of this happened. But basically, you have two groups of people. The Jewish people in both Galilee and Judea and the Samaritans in Samaria. And they have about 400 years of rivalry between them. Now, that's longer than the royals and the cardinals or the chiefs and the raiders. That, that is a long time that they were at each other's throats. And it, it got so bad that they would, they would avoid each other at all costs. They did not want to associate with one another. And so when you had to travel from Judea to Galilee or vice versa, you had to make a decision. You could go through Samaria and that was a three-day journey, or you could go all the way around it, which was a six-day journey. And as crazy as it sounds, many people chose the latter just so that they didn't have to interact with any Samaritans. But here Jesus tells them in this very next line that they're going to go through Samaria. And you can, you can almost hear the disciples protesting that they don't want to do this. They don't want to risk it. It's just going to stir up trouble. Honestly, the way they look at Samaria kind of reminds me of when I was growing up and my parents would talk about the bad part of town. The part of town that when you drove through it, you, you locked all your doors because apparently that, that stops all the crime. And just like the bad part of town, a lot of, of the tension here is based on stereotypes and assumptions that may not be true. But they wanted to avoid this area, and Jesus says, no, we're going to go through it. In fact, the language is really interesting. It says, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, we could interpret that a couple ways. Maybe they were short on supplies, so they couldn't make the long trip. Maybe they were short on time, and they couldn't make the long trip. Or maybe it's something deeper. Maybe Jesus knew that God had something for them to experience in Samaria. But either way, that's how they travel. And it says, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Joseph or Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. So you, you have this area in Samaria, and, and it's, called, it's called Jacob's Well. And what's interesting about it is that it has a shared history between the Jews and the Samaritans. They both have reverence for this location. It's, it's a bit of common ground, and there was a couple roads that met there, and so it was a kind, kind of a popular intersection. And that's where we find them. And it says, Soon a Samaritan woman came over to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into a village to buy some food. Now, I'm sure the disciples love that. They already don't want to be in the area. And then Jesus sends them off 
to go shop at the Walmart there, and it's not even a super center. It's one of those really small Walmarts that you walk in, and you're like, I didn't even know that they could be this tiny, and that's where they're stuck. Jesus is here at the well resting, probably tired from everything they had gone through. And while he's resting there, a Samaritan woman comes up to him, and they begin to talk to one another. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to us, in that moment, Jesus was breaking about nine different rules. There were about nine cultural things he wasn't supposed to do that he was doing. See, Jews didn't even talk to Samaritans. They would avoid them at all costs, like I said. And so the fact that he's even having a conversation with a Samaritan is a big deal. But it's not just a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus is a rabbi. It's a Jewish word for teacher. That's a title that he had. And people who had that title were often really careful about talking to women in public. There were stricter rabbis that they wouldn't even talk to their wife or daughter in public for fear that it would look bad. There was even a group of Pharisees who took this so far that they were known as the bruised Pharisees because whenever they'd see a woman, they would instantly look away and they had a bad habit of running into things. But it was somewhat uncommon for a rabbi to speak to a woman in public. And then there's another little detail there. It says it was at noontime. Now, women at this time would, would typically go to the well in the morning or the evening when it was cooler. It wasn't common to go at noontime. So, so why? Well, why is that when she's there? Well, we find out in the story a little later on that she has quite a past, She's had several husbands, and that would have given her a bad reputation. And it might be possible that nobody wanted her to go with them. So she couldn't go with the crowd in the morning or the evening. She was stuck going in the middle of the day in the heat. And yet, all of that doesn't stop Jesus from sitting down and talking to her, even though they're alone. Jesus puts his entire reputation at risk to have this conversation, this interaction with not only a Samaritan, not only a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. And yet Jesus connects with her. And I think there's a powerful little mini lesson in that by itself. That there is nothing that is going to stop Jesus from having a relationship with this woman. I don't care what is in your past. I don't care what your reputation is. Nothing will stop Jesus from having a relationship with you if you're willing to have a relationship with him. Jesus says there's always a seat for you at my table, no matter what the world says. I love that. So Jesus has this conversation with the woman. He actually asks her for a drink and then he begins to speak into her life in, in a very powerful way. But we're actually going to skip over the next few verses. That's where most sermons kind of focus their attention. But we're going to skip down a little further. After Jesus has spoken to her life, given her these really powerful words about living water, she replies in verse 19, Sir, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist... That Jerusalem is the only place to worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. I kind of stumbled over the name there, but at the heart of it, 
is a debate that's been going on for a long time. There's these two kind of hilly mount regions there. And the Samaritans believe that the one that they worship at was where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac and found God there. The Jews believe that the one that they worship at is where Moses went and met God and received the Ten Commandments, the law there. And there was this argument over which was the right place to worship. Where is it that we can find God? And here's what's so crazy is I don't know if that argument ever ended. I don't know if that debate ever stopped because we're still doing this. We're still constantly asking, where can I find God? Where is it I'm supposed to worship? And then we get in debates and arguments about it. That's why we have churches in Johnson County that share parking lots with other churches. That's why in the Springfield, Missouri area, there's over 80 Baptist churches. Not churches, just Baptist churches. There's over 80 of them. We love to debate and argue about church and which church is right. Where can we find God? Where should we worship? Speaking of Baptists, there's, there's a kind of funny story about a Baptist that went on a boating trip. And unfortunately, tragedy struck and he found himself stranded on an island alone, just him. But he was able to survive several months, in fact. He developed an entire system of getting food and getting water. He had quite the infrastructure built up. When the rescue team finally arrived to pick him up, they were pretty shocked. And they saw that he had built three huts there, beautiful huts. And they asked him, there's only one of you. Why Why are there three? When he says, well, that one there is my home. And that one there is my church. And they said, okay, well, what about that one? He said, oh, that's my old church. I'll I'll give you a minute for the laughter to die down. (laughs) No, I love that story because it illustrates the fact that even if we were alone, we would be arguing about which church is right or where can we find God? Where are we supposed to worship? And that's the question that she asked Jesus. And this is how Jesus replies. He says, believe me, dear woman. It's a kind of intimate term there. He's about to get serious. He says, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews, because Jesus himself came through the Jews. It says, but a time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It says, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then Jesus declares to her that he is the Messiah. What Jesus does there is he ends the debate. He ends the argument. He says that God isn't found on one hilltop or the other. God is not found in one temple or the other. He's not found in one physical location. 
Worship doesn't have to happen in one spot at one time. Jesus says no. A time is coming. Indeed, it is here now when we will worship in spirit and truth. In other words, we can worship anywhere at any time. And that was so powerful. It was so defining for them. It was revolutionary. You know, this became a huge teaching for the early church. See, early on, many Christians, they weren't even called that. They were called the followers of the way, the followers of Jesus. Many of them believed that the whole faith, the whole Jewish faith would come to believe in Jesus. So there wouldn't be like a, a new system of churches. They would continue to worship at the temple, but it would just be kind of the next step in their faith journey. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. And, and they, they weren't allowed to worship at the temple like that. They weren't allowed to worship in the synagogues like that. So they started their own communities based on this idea that Jesus said that you can worship anywhere at any time. And here's what we read about these early Christian communities. We've actually done an entire sermon series on this passage. It says, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared their money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. So they still went there. But when they weren't allowed to, to do all their Jesus stuff there, it says they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added their fellowship, those who were being saved. And that's what the early church was like. It wasn't in one place at one time. They were, they were meeting in their homes. And this became huge. In fact, it's one of the only reasons that Christianity survived. Because see, in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus died, you had the Romans, and the Romans marched in to Jerusalem, and they raided the temple. They destroyed it. In fact, they set a fire inside of it. And the rumor was that the fire burned so hot that the gold melted down and ran between the bricks, and the temple was gone. And once the temple was gone, there was no center for all worship. And it, it really became in their homes. And those became the first Christian communities that developed into the first churches that we see Paul visiting and writing to. But I think at some point, we kind of reverted back to an older definition. We kind of forgot Jesus' teaching about how worship could happen anywhere at any time. That worship is about people connecting with God and not a temple or a mount. Let me give you a prime example. Imagine if I said that I wanted to, I wanted to show you my family. I wanted to introduce you to my family. And so we all go outside and we pile into my 2013 Ford Focus. Somehow we all get in and then we drive over to Overland Park just off of 87th and Farley, and we, we go down my street, and we pull up, and I point to my home, and I say, there's my family. 
Isn't my family beautiful? We actually just put a new door on my family. We're, we're looking to get new energy-efficient windows on my family. My neighbors, they've, they've got a really nice yard in front of their family. And the more I would do that, the weirder it would sound. Because we both know that my family is not the house. It's the people inside the house. And what makes my family my family is the connections that we have with one another. And yet when we talk about church, we talk about it well, like I was talking about my family. As the building, as this one location, or this one time. And what this series is about is challenging that. As a reminder that we worship in spirit and truth. And that worship can happen anywhere at any time. And so I'm here, I'm here in the lobby. And I love this lobby because this is where people connect. They run into one another. They talk to one another. They share stories with one another. And sometimes I wonder, is it possible that worship doesn't just happen in there, in the worship center, but worship is also happening out here in the lobby? Is it possible that we're having church out here as well as in there? When somebody walks in who's had a long week where they feel alone, like they don't belong, and they come through those doors and somebody walks up with a huge smile on their face and says, I am so happy you are here. That's church. When two people sit at a table over there and they catch up for the first time in a long time, and they're encouraging one another and they walk out of here feeling like they reconnected. That's, that's church. When, when somebody's talking in the lobby about a need that they have in their life that they don't know how to meet, and somebody else overhears it and says, hey, I can help you out. That's church. When somebody sits at that couch over there and they open up their Bible while their kids are in the play area and they're diving into God's word and God is speaking to them, that's church in the lobby. See, we're actually changing the way that we're doing church here this summer. Now, after we get done in there, after the music and the message is done, we're giving people a chance to come out here. And you don't have to pick your kids up yet. They're still doing activities in the back, but you've got you know, 10, 15 minutes to hang out here, order something at the cafe, reconnect with one another. We've been gone and apart so long because of this pandemic. We need some reconnecting. And I think as we do that, we're going to have church in the lobby. Now, some of you watching this at home might be thinking, Chris, why are you preaching this to the online congregation? Many of us will never be in your lobby. And to you, I have a question. Where are the lobbies in your life? Where are the places that you interact with people, that you meet people, and is there any way that you can turn those lobbies into church? Maybe it's a back patio. Maybe it's a baseball field. Maybe it's a conference room at work. Anywhere that you connect with other people, I believe, because of what Jesus says, can turn into a place where we honor God, we worship God, and we have church. And so, be thinking, where are the lobbies in your life? 
And how can God use them? How can you be a part of what God is doing in those lobbies? Let me pray. Dear God, I thank you for being a God that allows us to worship in spirit and truth, that we don't have to be at one place at one time, always asking where is it that we can meet God, but we know we can meet you right here, right now, in the lobby, in our homes. We can find you and we can share you, and I pray that's exactly what we do. In Jesus' name, amen.